since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so you will not grow weary and lose heart. So today uh, we are continuing in this sermon series, Christ Above all and, and as you can assume, yes, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 today. We are not quite at Hebrews uh, 10 yet, but Mikey did a very good job setting us up for that. Now, the thing today is we're going to start a sermon on Hebrews 4, and we're going to start it in, in maybe what would be a little bit of an unexpected place. Um, shouldn't be unexpected if you were paying attention again last week, because last week what we focused on was the idea in, in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews that Christ is indeed greater than Moses. And, and as we looked at what was written in the third chapter of Hebrews, we also went back in time and we also went and, and reminded ourselves of a little bit of the story of Moses and, and of the Israelites as he led them out of Egypt. And we looked back into the books of Exodus and Numbers. And what we saw as we, we left our message last week was that the Israelites were, were left out of the promised land because of a lack of faith. Right? They were told, you're not going to enter this land that I've promised you because you are afraid. And it was real justifiable fear again that the people felt because the people that were in this land that was promised to them, they were big and they were scary. Right? Never mind the fact that the armies of Egypt were also big and scary. But God left them floating face down in the Red Sea. Right? Never mind the fact that being in, in the desert and not having any food is very scary. But God provided food for the people miraculously. Right? Never mind that it's scary again to be in the desert and, and to be so thirsty, to, to watch the people that you love, to watch your children and, and your spouse, you know, just, just growing weak from thirst. That's scary. But God brought the people water from a stone. But this now, this, this last ask that God had to, to step out and actually reach out and receive the gift that he had for them, this was now a bridge too far for the people. Right? This time the fear was going to be too much. Because of their fear, the people were delivered back into bondage, right? Because of their lack of faith, and again, because of fear that was justifiable by worldly standards, they were delivered to the wilderness. I got a new shirt um, the other week, and uh, I, I wore it into the office one day, uh, and it says, uh, hope kills fear across the front of the shirt. Uh, and Anthony was real quick to remind me that the equation can be reversed. And I checked the shirt is not reversible, uh, but the other way it also works. Fear will also kill our hope. Right? If we let fear live in our lives unchecked, it will kill our hope. 
And again, because of this fear, God's chosen people were delivered into slavery, and they did not go back to the Egyptians that they longed for so often. Right This time, instead of going to the, the slave master that they begged for, God sent them to this, this kind of purgatory, this, this waiting room of the wilderness. He reminds them, you were so close to everything that I wanted to give you. But now, no one of this generation, right, no one who, who witnessed God's amazing glory and his amazing power with their own two eyes, no one in this generation is going to step into the promised land because you were too afraid to reach out and step into it. Again, because of this, they're sentenced to the wilderness, a people that would wander and a people who would be without a land until the last of that unbelieving generation were to pass away. The promise, it still stood, but now it would be their children, it would be their, their grandchildren who would now inherit the promise that was meant for them. They let the fears of this world drown their faith. And what we need to do now is we need to learn from their failure. We have to strive and make it our mission to avoid a similar fate as the Israelites had. You see, today when we pick up the story, now 40 years has gone by. The generation who lacked faith, who was punished to the wilderness, they have come and they have gone. See, and along with them, their great leader, Moses, who led them out of Egypt, Moses has also passed away. And God brings up a new leader. God doesn't leave the people without someone holding the steering wheel. He brings along this man named Joshua. And it's Joshua who would finish the job that was started four decades ago. Again, four decades of waiting in, for the land that God had promised them. This is a long way of saying, so today we begin our sermon on Hebrews 4, where we actually begin is in Joshua chapter 1. And in verse 12, we're going to find this new leader, Joshua, is speaking to a specific group of people. Uh, he's specifically speaking to these tribes who, who God, through his servant Moses, had made promises to. Moses had promised these tribes a specific piece of land on the other side of the Jordan River. Again, we see in Numbers and Deuteronomy that, that Moses makes this covenant with these people. He says, you will be given this particular parcel of land as long as when the time comes, you cross over the Jordan and you join your brothers to receive the land that was promised to them. So what we're about to read, it's Joshua reminding them of the promise that was made many years before, but also important to note that Joshua promises them something extra as well. So we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 in Joshua 1, and here's what it says. It says, and to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. He would go on to tell them, he says, you know, leave your wives and leave the children at home. Leave all of the livestock. Leave all of your possessions where it's safe on the other side of the river. Right? Have them stay there, but you're going to come with us. You're going to join us in battle until, in verse 15 it says, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and you shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan 
toward the sunrise. See, the promise that's being made to the Reubenites and the Gadites and to the the half-tribe of Manasseh is that God is going to provide them with a place of rest. He, He says, but first you must stand up alongside your brothers until the Lord also gives them rest. Now, this sermon is entitled, Jesus is Rest. Right? And just based off that, at surface level, this is a sermon that I can promise you I am well qualified to deliver. Okay, I am comfortable telling you that if I drug Linda up here and I said that she had to give you a top five list, the top five things that Daniel excels at, that Daniel is exceptional at, I promise you somewhere on that list would be Daniel is awesome at resting. Okay? I hope it would not be number one on the list. That would be a little bit convicting. But I promise you on a top five somewhere, Daniel is an expert at resting is there. And I probably talk more to us guys right now than I do the ladies because, uh, guys, let's be honest, we are very often better at resting than our female counterparts are. But most men in this room, if I was to survey you, you have a specific spot in your house that is your napping spot. Maybe it's a special recliner that everybody knows that's dad's recliner, right? Maybe it's an end of the couch that is yours and that's prescribed where dad puts his feet up and watches the football game. Maybe it's a a special chair out in the sunroom. Uh, This is my resting spot right here, if you can see. See, this is where you will find me, or or this at least is what I should say, this is where I want you to find me on every Sunday afternoon after church. You see, in my life, my my week kind of builds like this crescendo towards Sunday morning, right? Uh, Some weeks obviously build and crescendo faster than others, but either way, when I reach kind of the, the, the mountaintop of Sunday after church, I'm ready for some rest. And most of the time, my family is very gracious and very understanding, and they give me this time of rest. I value that time of rest. It's really important to me. And I think for all of us, to different degrees, we do all need rest, right? We just need some peace and quiet, don't we? Just this time where maybe the walls that we spend all week kind of building up around us to keep us safe in this nasty world we live in, where all those walls can just come down, where we don't have to constantly feel like we're standing on guard waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? This time that we can just kind of breathe and close our eyes and we let all the the fear And we let all of the anxiety and we let all the stresses of our lives just kind of melt away for for 45 minutes as we shut our eyes on the couch. The thing is, is is the rest that Moses and Joshua, that that they're promising to the people, uh, it's different. See, Joshua is not promising the people a Sunday afternoon nap. What Joshua is promising to them is, is peace from their enemies, where this opportunity to live a life that they feel uh, where they are free from invasion, the ability for them to go out and raise their families without constantly looking over their shoulders, thinking that marauders are going to become, uh, coming around the corner, I should say, this ability to allow them to tend to their flocks and tend to their fields without the anxiety that someone is going to be coming and is going to take all of it away from, from them. Everything that they've worked so hard for, having it all disappear in a moment. See, that's the type of rest that God is promising these people. And again, think back to last week. That that's the promise that was made. 
But last week showed us that the people missed out on that rest because of fear. Chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews needs to answer a very important question for us now, and that question is, is does that promise of rest, does God's promise of rest, does it still stand? I think that's a really important question that we need to understand. It's a question I know just personally from my own life, it's a question I would like to have the answer to. You see, for too many of us, We've resigned ourselves to the idea that, that rest is just a 30-minute nap in your favorite chair. Maybe for some of you, rest is, is only the 10 minutes every morning where you're the first one awake in your house, and it's just you and your coffee, and, and no one is pestering you, no one is poking at you, no one is asking you to get them breakfast or anything of that nature. It's just you and your beverage. Maybe the only time of rest that you feel in your life is a Saturday morning. It's the one day of the week where that incessant alarm clock is not going to wake you up and force you out of bed. I, I am ashamed to tell you that there was a time in my life where the only place where I felt rest was my commute to and from work. Right? Because work was full of all kinds of stresses and all kinds of pressures. And home brought all kinds of obligations and all kinds of pressure as well. But it was that, that sweet, sweet 15 minutes of quiet, alone time in my car where anything that I wanted to be on the radio could be on the radio. And I could shut my brain off and worry about nothing. Now, I want to be clear, home is now a safe place. I don't want you guys thinking this is still this way. I'm talking years and years ago. But what we need to understand is that the rest that God offered the people in Joshua's time, again, it is so much more than a nap. And the question that we should want to know the answer to is, does the promise of that type of rest still stand for us? The author of Hebrews wastes no time telling us the answer. He says, yes, it does. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 by saying, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his words were finished from the foundation of the world. The sequence of events is God promises the people rest. The people lack hope, they lack faith, and they are sent away from rest. The question is, does God's promise of rest still stand? And the answer is yes. Because God's promises are timeless. Even in our disobedience, God has shown us here in Scripture, by the example we just looked at, that His promises do still endure. Now, again, in the example we looked at, it was the next generation that would inherit the rest. It's the next generation that would inherit the promised land. But, but the author of Hebrews cannot be any more clear. He says, therefore, you know, again, he's connecting what he's about to say to everything that we just heard in chapter 3. He says, therefore, he says, the promise of entering his rest, it still stands. There is no ifs. It's assumed that if you are reading this letter, you should agree with this. 
Verse 1, it's telling us that, that real rest exists. That godly rest is still available to us. And I don't think that this letter was written to first century believers or it was preserved for 21st century believers. I don't think that the inspiration here was for us to, to leave our wives and our cattle and our children on one side of the Clinton River and bravely storm into Shelby Township. I, I don't think that is the call that he is giving us here. I think obviously there must be something much greater at play. In the scripture in Hebrews we just read, where I hope your eyes were drawn to, was verse 3. Okay, right at the beginning of verse 3, it says, For we who have believed enter that rest. And it kind of takes all of the drama out of the rest of the question, doesn't it? It's one of the few places, I think, in, in this book where we're going to get a simple, crystal clear, straightforward explanation. He says, yes. Yes, remember, good news, it came to the Israelites. Right? God said to the Israelites, he said, you can be set free. He says, no one here is going to enslave you anymore. He says, no one's going to oppress you. I'm giving you a land where you can grow, where you can raise your families. And he says, it's right there in front of you. All you have to do is just reach out and take it. Just, just have faith. But they, they did not, and they failed, and they perished. And if this same promise of true rest, if it continues for us today, he says it's for those who have believed in Christ as Messiah, he's saying, good news, Christian, you too can be set free. Right? He says, the, the rest and the peace that I promise, it's right there. It is right in front of you. He says, hey, if, if you're with me, no one in this world can enslave your spirit. He says, if, if you are with me, Christian, that, that no one can oppress your soul. He, he, we, we even know that if we are with him, no one can even permanently separate us from those that we love. God's message for us is the same. He's saying, my promise is right there. J just have faith, right? Just reach out and take it. And this is the good news, is it not? Isn't it not good news that if you believe what I just said, that eternal peace and rest is being offered to you? I mean, really, that is really, really, really good news. But because it's Hebrews, it can't just leave us with the good news. There, there has to be some type of warning. There has to be some element of trouble in this passage. Right? A reminder that if we fail to reach that promised rest... But that's not where we want to find ourselves. Right? What the author does is clearly and plainly, he reminds all that would read this letter that simply hearing the message is not enough to redeem it. Because the original people, they, they heard the promise. They understood that a promise of rest was being offered to them. They declined. They turned aside from it. They, they made the decision to not receive peace. He tells us that who did receive it was the generation that heard and responded, or, or the generation that actually acted. Those are the ones that were rewarded. And we're going to continue to see as we walk through the book of, of Hebrews, I told you before that all throughout this book, the author is laying out a very precise, concise argument, this idea that Christ is above all. 
That Jesus is greater than anything and everything that you've ever thought you have ever known in your entire life. But what he'll do is chapter after chapter, he's essentially just adding new wrinkles. He's adding new levels to that truth. So, so just when we get to this point and we think we're safe to say, okay, okay, we understand. We got it. Hope kills fear. Fear kills hope. If we trust in God, if we receive the promise, then we receive our rest. Just when we think we have that figured out, this is what he says in verses 4 through 10. It says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And he quotes, uh, going back looking at Genesis here, he says, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author wants to clear something up for us. Uh, He's trying again to add another level to our understanding, trying to make sure that he's painting a more accurate picture of what the rest actually is that is being offered to us. What our job is, what we have to be careful to do, is to not make assumptions, to not just jump to what is easily understood or not just jump to to, to what we think he might be saying here. Because as humans, especially as humans who have a, a, a basic understanding of the word of God, when we start seeing quotes from the book of Genesis or references from the book of Genesis, and when we see a word that is translated into something that is familiar that we understand, in this case, Sabbath, we have a tendency to, to fall back on what we already think that we know, or, or again, what is easily understood. And, and my fear is, is if we do that with this particular passage, it very easily and very quickly becomes a legalistic charge to observe the Sabbath. And my fear is, is if we do that, it leads us to believe that the rest that we all desperately need The rest that can be found in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is only available to you once every seven days. And that is not at all what the author is trying to say here. All he wants you to understand is that God's idea of rest is very different than mine and yours. You see, God's rest, it is not a rest of inaction. See, God's rest is one of completion. When God rested on the seventh day of creation, it was not because he was lazy. Right? God did not rest because he felt like a sloth. He did not rest because he was exasperated. He did not rest because he was exhausted. He was not so tired from his work that he had to curl up on the couch with a blanket and a glass of tea. Right? God, God did not need to shut out the world sometimes like we feel that we need to. This world that he just created, he didn't need to get away from it so that he could mentally regroup himself. The reason that God rested, it was because the mission was accomplished. Right? He had set out and he had accomplished everything that he wanted to. 
And this is a much clearer picture of the type of rest that can be available to us. This is a rest that really has been lost ever since the garden, right? This is the type of rest that we were always designed to have in our lives. But, but ever since, as a species, we received this sentence to, to toil in our labor, this is the rest that has eluded us. And I think deep down in, in most of our hearts, we've always known that, that something isn't right. Haven't we always felt like there, just, there has to be something more than just toiling day after day after day, right? Never really accomplishing anything, never really getting anywhere, we've all felt like this. You've, all, you've felt that way because it has not always been that way. And we think about it. As Adam and Eve strolled through the garden, they experienced peace and harmony with each other. They experienced peace and harmony with nature. They experienced peace and harmony with God. They had not a care in the world. I always chuckle myself, I can't imagine being at such peace and knowing such rest that you could take a stroll through a lush tropical paradise completely naked and never even realize it. Right? For most of us, that's not rest, that's a, a recurring nightmare that we have. You see, there was nothing that they needed rest from. They enjoyed a, a deep spiritual rest because of the direct connection that they shared to God. Doesn't that sound far superior to my Sunday afternoon naps? That rest that they enjoyed in the garden, doesn't it also sound far superior even to the rest that Joshua promised to the people? Right? But they broke that connection for us. They failed, they sinned, they were cursed. And, and that true spiritual rest, that rest of completion, was broken too. Right? And ever since then, dads everywhere, we've been settling for just a cheap imitation that looks like a barca lounger on a Sunday afternoon. And it makes me realize and have to admit that the rest that I look forward to every single week is really just a cheap imitation. You know, first off, it can't last forever, that type of rest. Because I have to ignore other responsibilities in order to actually experience that rest. Right? As I lay on the couch on a Sunday afternoon to enjoy my rest, not too far away there are kids that want to play with their dad. And not too far away there's a wife that needs help folding laundry. Not too far away there's a pile of paperwork where there's taxes that need to get filed and there's bills that need to get paid. I mean, not right now, but other times of year, there's grass that needs to get cut. There's hedges that need to be trimmed. There's dogs that need to be walked. There's dishes to do. There's phone calls to return. And I'm not trying to tell you that taking that cat nap is a bad thing. I'm, never, I'm not telling you to never put down the tasks of the day and, and make sure that you are regrouping and recharging. I'm just saying that that, not, that that is not the rest that God is offering to you as a Christian. It's also, again, it's certainly not a promise that you'll be able to find rest just once out of every seven days. Again, to observe a Sabbath. That, that's not the point of what the author is saying. The word, actually, that, that he uses here 
Uh, if you look back at the original text, and again, you guys know that I'm so fluent in Greek, but, but this word that the author actually wrote is sabbatismos. If you don't know me, that was a joke. I'm not fluent in Greek. But sabbatismos. You see, and why this is important, just to know this one word, you don't have to be able to read your whole Bible in Greek, but you see this one word that the author uses that we translate as Sabbath? Well, this word sabbatismos is not actually used anywhere else in the New Testament. Some actually think that it's a word or a phrase that the author of the book of Hebrews actually made up himself. And there's got to be a reason why he's not using the same word that is used all throughout the New Testament for the word Sabbath. And I believe that is because he does not want you to look at this as just a legalistic call to take one day a week to put aside your duties. Taking a legalistic view of the observation of the Sabbath means that all you are doing is taking, again, a temporary physical rest. If you decide that on the seventh day of the week that, that you do not want to pay your bills, you don't want to do your taxes, you don't want to cut your grass or trim your hedges, you don't want to walk the dogs, you're not going to make your beds, you're not going to do the dishes, and you will not return any work emails, do all of those things just disappear? Right? Was your rest permanent? Or was your rest temporary and fleeting? You see, I, I think we should not settle for anything less than the complete spiritual rest that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. We go back and look at the words of Jesus. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we submit our lives to Jesus Christ, when we call him Lord and we acknowledge that he is the only intercessor that we will need with the Father, that is what gives you true rest. Right? That is how we enter into his promise. That is how we find rest for our souls. On this side of eternity, this is the only way that we will ever get a sweet taste of the rest that was truly intended for us. And I know that, again, if we polled everyone in this room, everyone would agree that very often the burdens of this world, they do not feel light. Sometimes life is not an easy yoke to bear. But again, you must remember that the promise that is given to us for rest, it's not that we will not have burdens. We say it all the time. In fact, we are promised that there will be burdens, that there will be trouble. But if I'm promised this rest and I'm promised trouble, how do I process this? Because I still have to live in this world this world that is every bit still as broken as it was when Adam and Eve ate of the tree. Right? In fact, most of you would probably argue that the world we're living in right now is, is as stressful as humanity has ever been, as, as sinful as humanity has ever been. And, and making Jesus Christ my Savior, it does not just remove me from this rat race of life. The question then is, what does it do that, that can provide us with true rest, with real rest, with authentic, complete rest? And there's three things, I think, that we get that, that we can apply. 
The first one, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the first thing that we're provided with, the first thing we are promised, is a purpose. Right? When you are a Christian, the anxiety that most people feel, this, this need to understand the meaning of life, it goes away. Right? That question of, why am I here, you already know the answer to. Right? Your, your identity, your, your purpose, I should say, becomes so clear, you're, you're no longer a homemaker or a nurse or an auto mechanic, you're a disciple. And you have a job or you have a duty that is given to you that has no equal, there is no greater uh, 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 obligation that could be given to you. You get to go out and you get to make more disciples. You know your purpose. The second thing that we are given uh, uh, freedom through with Jesus Christ is identity. You see, a Christian knows who they, who they are because they understand whose they are. You see, a Christian has the assurance to know that they were made in the image of God. We live in a world where identity is drowning people. The search for identity, I should say, is drowning people. But as a Christian, we know that we were made to the exact, exact specifications that God laid out when he knit us together in our mother's womb. See, a Christian has the assurance of knowing that, that they are not a mistake, that you were not put together wrong. A Christian knows that they were fearfully and wonderfully made. And the third thing that we get is indeed a promise. You see, as a Christian, we are still promised to one day stand in front of our Creator, but we will be able to boldly stand with confidence knowing that we are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a promise that provides you with amazing freedom. To know that when you stand in judgment, that your sins are going to be cast as far as the east is from the west. A Christian can have real peace, knowing that their eternity is assured. And not only knowing that it's assured, but knowing that someone else already paid the price for it. So a Christian is free from the constant worry and anxiety, that, that constant fear that you've never climbed high enough on the ladder to get you to your destination. The truth is our complete rest. It probably, we aren't going to see that complete rest until justice is restored and until sin is abolished. But for now, we have to remain hopeful and grateful for the promise of purpose and identity, for the promise of an eternity that is assured. Our wish should be that everyone that we know, everyone that we love, would take advantage of this promise that is offered. As we think back to Joshua, the promise of, of rest that they fought for, it was one, again, that would simply allow them to, to live in peace, to live without a fear of their enemies. And today's promise of rest, well, again, it does not remove you from the trouble of this world. Christ's promise to us does make you invincible to the lies of your enemy. And again, there, there is, of course, a warning for us to heed here as well. As we, we wrap up today in verses 11 through 13, it says this. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's just kind of ironic that I spend all morning talking to you about the promise of rest, and then I think the verse that we leave with is verse 13, because verse 13 does not sound very restful, does it? The, the idea of being naked and exposed in front of the one to whom we must give an account for every decision, for every action of our life. Right? Can you honestly think of a moment that will be less peaceful or a moment that it will be harder to rest in than that. I don't think many people will be dozing off for their Sunday afternoon nap as they stand in judgment. Think of how much stress and anxiety and pressure would build up on someone as they're standing in front of a God whom they spent their entire life denying even existed. And that God who they denied is laying all of their sins and their failures, laying it out all bare in front of them. I, I can't really truly understand how stressful that moment will be as, as, they, as they're there and they're just trying to, to desperately justify themselves with their good deeds. They're, they're trying to drop some names, hoping that it will get them through the door. And the answer they hear back is, depart from me, I never knew you. And I have friends, and I have family, that that horrible, stressful moment awaits for them, and you probably do too. But I still find time for my Sunday afternoon naps, don't I? You see, our, our job, it is not yet done. And I don't want to leave you on that down note. I don't want to leave you, or I do want to leave you walking with the truth that while, yes, there is indeed much to do, we have to constantly remember that Christ came and he has given us the promise of real, true rest, real, true relief from the stresses of this world. So if you struggle with that truth, I'm going to leave you today with two verses that are, that are maybe verses you can stick in your back pocket. It's 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. And even maybe just look at verse 7, because it is so short, yet so powerful. But here's what it says. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And then verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Pray with me.